listening to Destination Country X, a KPMG tax radio podcast series. We cover key U.S. and foreign tax and trade developments that affect cross-border investment. I'm your host, Kim Major, a principal with Washington National Tax and leader of the firm's inbound tax practice. We're glad to have you join us. Enjoy the program. When we last spoke with John Gimigliano, head of KPMG's Washington National Tax Legislative Team, it was prior to the November elections. We asked him then to talk about the Biden tax proposals as the presidential and vice presidential candidates hit the campaign trail. So now it's December, and the elections are, for the most part, although not entirely, in the rear view. With me is Courtney Wallace, my co-host and international tax principal from our Detroit office. We've asked John back today to talk us through where we are now and where he thinks the Biden tax plan could be headed. John, thanks so much for joining us. It's always great to hear from you. And I can say my clients have been very busy modeling potential impacts of a Biden tax plan. And I can tell you they're a little nervous. And so, John, in talking pre-election, we noted and perhaps to some extent relied on the possibility that Democrats would not only take the White House, but also the Senate. And I guess that didn't happen. Well, Kim, it didn't happen yet. Not yet. That, (laughs) That part is true. And it still could. So, you know, I suspect people know this if you've been following along that the Senate is in a 50 to 48 position right now with two seats yet to be determined. Two seats in Georgia. And those two seats in Georgia then kind of mean everything. Republicans need to win at least one. Democrats need to win both. If Democrats do win both of them, they get to 50-50. Kamala Harris, the vice president, would cast the tie-breaking vote, thereby giving Democrats functional control of the Senate. You mentioned Kamala Harris. On the campaign trail, she was talking about her wish that the White House would walk back on tax reform. Was that just rhetoric? Her tax plan as a candidate was to repeal the entire TCJA, which to me never made a huge amount of sense because that also meant, of course, repealing the $4 trillion of tax increases in the TCJA. That probably wasn't going to happen, but she was clearly no fan of it. I think it's safe to say that when you look at the Biden plan, it's mostly consistent with that. It does, undoes, I should say, really major portions that the TCJA was built upon, the biggest one being the corporate rate, and then some of the international provisions that we've all come to know and love, like the guilty. How likely all those things are in this narrowly divided Senate if the Democrats do get there? Well, that's a really interesting and a really hard question to answer. I guess the best I can say right now is in that scenario where it's 50-50 with Kamala Harris casting the tie-breaking vote, we should probably lower the ceiling of expectations to something lower than the full Biden plan getting enacted. Back in the 1960s, when subpart F first came in, I could be wrong, but my recollection of this was that there was a proposal in Congress that went through before subpart F was adopted. And it was basically, let's have no deferral, tax everything at the corporate tax rate, wherever it is on your corporate org chart that you earn it. I also recall that there was kind of a stepping back on that because That sounds like a good plan from a fiscal protectionism perspective, but from a competitiveness perspective of the U.S.-based multinationals on the world stage, that's not so good. So part F really was a compromise in that sense. We're going to double up on the guilty rate so that you really don't get any deferral at all. What does that do to the U.S. competitive positioning in the global marketplace? 
Well, you're right. We're not that far from a world of worldwide taxation, no deferral, which, by the way, we should note that if the Democrats do get the Senate, that the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee would be Ron Wyden, and that's the Ron Wyden tax reform plan forever, worldwide, no deferral. And so it, it is an interesting question of what does that do from a competitiveness point of view? If you then also say, hey, we're going to stick you with a surtax for round-tripping your goods, you can't even chase a lower labor cost overseas for your manufacturing. And if you put all that together against the fact that in Europe, you're still seeing corporate tax rates that are relatively low, you're seeing a real participation exemption. The balance has now been tipped. And really the OECD piece is coming into this too, right? If we decouple the guilty and the fitty is fitty at risk on the foreign side. Or if I think about pillar two and minimum profit in, you know, entities overseas, suddenly they're coming back in and getting picked up on the guilty side. Look, members of Congress are aware of the international competition argument. I would argue that was really the impetus for the TCJA. It was acknowledged that 35% was too high. The time had come to do something about the corporate rate and to help U.S. companies be more competitive on the global stage. But I also think there's a separate question of whether or not the TCJA went too far. And I think there's a strong point of view by many members of Congress that it did, lowering the rate and lowering taxes for multinationals. There are incentives and there are incentives. And whatever you do is going to have a trickle-down effect. We talked about the Biden offshoring penalty. The flip side of that, of course, is the Biden onshoring tax credit, which is an investment tax credit for CapEx spent in the U.S. It specifically refers to increasing manufacturing jobs. And for whatever reason, manufacturing is always sort of near and dear to legislators' hearts. But I think in the end, that would be made broader. And so that could be one thing that could get bipartisan support, even if we don't get the flip side of it, which is the offshoring penalty. I could see an onshoring investment tax credit happening for domestic activity. And I guess manufacturing incentives, particularly if you're going to onshore manufacturing or onshore assets, is another way of affecting the point of the HIA, Homeland Investment Act, particularly in an era where we no longer have untaxed foreign earnings to bring back home. What worries me is that the credits inadvertently remain in the beat. If you don't take those credits back out of the beat calculation, then you're going to get 10% clawback on the value. Yeah, it's a very valid point. It's one of the points that's been made by the other credits. So you're giving with one hand and taking away with the other. An interesting thing that Democrats put forth earlier this year was a way to make wind and solar tax credits refundable. And in doing that, instead of saying these are tax credits that are refundable, they said, these are tax credits, and we will treat them as a payment of tax. In other words, they're saying they're not credits, and they were written that way to get beat relief. So it's something that we could definitely see Congress be sensitive to. I think certainly providing relief on R&E expensing, you know, the rule that requires R&E costs to go to amortization is something that Congress had almost immediately had buyer's remorse over enacting in the TCJA, I think is a very good chance that they come back to that and defer it or maybe even repeal it at some point. With respect to the amortization, there's a portion of the amortization of the RE expenses that you get a penalty in terms of a longer amortization period if the RE is performed overseas. Maybe if they pulled back on the amortization, they don't necessarily have to pull back equally for U.S. and foreign Arnie. 
Look, that's a long way of saying, wow, it's complicated, right? Right. So I don't think that we totally nailed you down yet, John. (laughs) 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 So let's say if the Democrats were to win both the seats in Georgia, do you think we get tax reform in 2021 or does it get pushed to 2022? Crystal ball. Well, my crystal ball has been broken a long time, uh, but I can try and make an educated guess. If the Democrats do this, they'll probably have to do it using budget reconciliation. And if you use budget reconciliation to to pass it with 51 votes, you really only are going to get two of those at most in 2021. And so despite everything I just said, it kind of forces you to put a lot of things crammed into one bill because you only get two of them. And so you're probably looking at two big bills, one maybe in the middle of 2021 and maybe at the end of 2021, where these could kind of be in play. But having said that, they still need to get 51 votes. And some of the things in the Biden plan aren't going to be easy to get 51 votes for just because, you know, raising the corporate rate, raising the capital gains rates won't be easy to do. What about IRS funding? Could we see some bipartisanship or agreement there around enforcement? There are a lot of IRS campaigns going on and a lot of potential tax dollars in play, particularly in the pre-COVID years when revenue was a, a little higher overall. Well, you know, this is another perennial issue, right? How much should we fund the IRS? And I think the stories are well known in terms of how antiquated some of the IRS systems are, the retirement problem that they have with their workforce aging substantially. I think I saw a statistic somewhere that the IRS labor force has decreased by something like 20% in the last two years. And it's a real problem. Look, truthfully, Republicans who have historically been less willing to give the IRS money did recently. Okay, we passed this $10 trillion tax bill, the TCJA. You should probably have some money to try and implement it. But there's clearly, it seems to be, a need for more to help the IRS become more effective. Republicans acknowledge, look, the IRS is doing a massive amount of work in trying to implement the TCJA, in trying to implement the CARES Act and all the COVID guidance that we've gotten in the last year, that they probably need more resources, both in terms of people, but also in terms of training and IT systems and so on. So I I think there is an opportunity for a bipartisan agreement to provide additional IRS funding. And I think we've seen that a lot in our client base, getting lots of questions, very detailed IDRs looking for extra information than we had seen previously, digging back into, like you said, the early years on the 965 amounts and how were those calculations done And I think we have seen a shift in our auditors and the questions that we're getting as well, because we have some clients that were in the CAP program. So early on, I think that the IRS folks were having a difficult time learning the new rules, but they're coming along and the questions are getting better and otherwise getting more involved in the information that they're looking for from their clients as well. And some of the campaigns are even non-income tax-specific withholding, for example. That's just 30% off the gross payment if you don't have the right paperwork on payments being made to foreign payees. You can think about things like that. They're not income-specific. They are compliance-specific. Did you do the right thing? Did you do the stuff that you were supposed to with respect to laws that have existed for quite some time? The non-compliance rate may be a known factor also for quite some time, so that may be low-hanging fruit. Right. Do you know anything about public country-by-country reporting? 
the weird and interesting part to me is that when the U.S. first got into country-by-country reporting, and this is on the private side, there was kind of a hue and a cry on the Hill about, could we possibly be doing this to the U.S.-based multinationals? This is horrible. And we really got dragged into country-by-country reporting on a defensive basis because if they weren't going to do it here, they're going to have to do it somewhere else and maybe 15, 17, 50 other somewhere else's. And I would point out of all the things in BEPS 1.0, that was the only thing that the Obama administration could do by itself. Anything else required Congress. Exactly. But then... I think there was a Democratic representative, who was it, Axney, who proposed, I want to say it was a rider to the CARES Act that didn't end up going anywhere, but it was for country-by-country reporting, the public version, and 180 degrees from where we started the debate on country-by-country reporting, and was kind of curious to see whether you had any thoughts as to whether that would advance. Well, I hadn't followed that proposal. Thank you. I'd like to actually go look at that. The one thing I will say is that a democratically controlled House and Senate was going to hear from the NGO community that supports that. I guess the question is, could that be done legislatively or like country by country reporting itself? Could it be done by executive action alone? I don't know the answer to that. Do you? I think it would have to be done legislatively because it's confidential taxpayer information. Yeah. Well, it's hard to imagine. I, I just don't think Republicans would support that. So you're going to need all 50 Democratic senators to agree that that's a good idea. That's a heavy lift. You know, as we're talking about this, I feel like that to the extent that Congress ends up locked up or the Senate ends up locked up, and there are very few kind of bipartisan things that can be pushed through, particularly when there's a squeeze on cash then it like the tariff situation becomes more important because the White House can control that without legislation. And, and John, I think that's 100% the right question to ask. What levers can you pull if you're the White House that you do not have to rely on Congress for? And if tariff is the lever, then you could sit down and start thinking creatively as to how to get your policy objectives met with a tariff. And it would not necessarily be a big surprise, given that we're rolling out of a very tariff-intensive administration. Well, that's true. And I would add to this thing, unilateral action from a Biden administration. What other regulatory authority can they use? Environmental, financial regulations, and of course, tax regulations. Inside the Biden Treasury, I'm sure one of the first meetings they will have in the Office of Tax Policy is, okay, if we can't get anything done legislatively, what can we do from a tax regulation standpoint that helps us accomplish Mm -hmm. our goals? So if we can't raise the guilty rate, what can we do about those guilty regulations that were issued by the Trump Treasury that can get us at least part of the way there? I think those are the kind of conversations that will go on. Right. I mean, it may be that they look at things like the high tax exception, they go, hmm. Right. Yeah, we ventured into trade a little bit on our last discussion, John. Any thoughts on what might happen from kind of a trade perspective under a new administration? We should expect a change in tone, I think, from a Biden administration. But from an absolute result, we may not see a dramatic change in the actual results on trade, at least not to the extent that I think a lot of people think that it might be. Going back to the enforcement question, if you put a little bit more money into Customs and Border Control, maybe you can collect up more in terms of those retaliatory tariffs, 
right? Classification issues have historically been a little bit loosey-goosey in terms of the importers just because historically they haven't really been subject to particularly high tariffs. But in an era where you've got 301 tariffs, you've got 232 tariffs, and classification means something because it's not just, you know, 2%, it's 2% plus 25 then a little bit of enforcement funding for customs would not be misplaced in terms of a revenue raiser. So that's ad valorem. Right, and that's something that the you know, an administration can at least try, partially do, by itself. So the runoff elections in Georgia will be super interesting from many perspectives. But with a universal acknowledgement that the federal government needs to find funds, there may be some movement on the tax front no matter what happens interesting times. In any case, thanks everyone for joining us. Stay well. We'll speak again soon. You've been listening to Destination Country X. Thank you for tuning in and we look forward to speaking to you next time.